Hey, my latest, I mean, I don't think I told you this yet. So you know the story about, um, you know, Jesus, a woman caught in adultery, and, you know, Jesus is on the ground, he's right, and then he says, you know, hey, hey, uh, whoever, whoever doesn't sin, cast the first stone, right? And then he bends down, and he's writing some more, and it's like a stone hits him on the shoulder. He looks up and says, come on, Mom, cut it out. <laughs> think about it. Think about it. <sighs> Come on. Okay, here we go. Hey, first Sunday in Lent. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. First John 3, 8. I mean, that is just crystal clear stuff, right? So what you saw this morning is the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You're not a victim. Okay? No matter what happens to you, you're not a victim. A lot of things happen to you. People can cut your head off, but you're not a victim. All right? You're not a victim unless you concede. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. First John 3, 8. O God, by whose spirit we are led into the wilderness of trial, grant that we too, standing in your strength against the power of darkness, may win victory over all evil suggestions and go forward with singleness of heart that we always serve you and you alone. Through him we pray, who was in all points tempted as we are, but did not fail, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right. Um, not sure exactly what I'm going to do today because I got so much stuff to do. Let's um, let's let's put money in the basket for people who don't have food. Milton Township uh, occasionally have issued these things saying, "Hey, we're out of food," which is always bad if you have a food bank that's out of food. So if you put money in, we'll give it to Milton Township. That's kind of nice. Um, if you want to go to Italy, kind of last call. They're booking the seats. There's about 35 or 37 people going, so it should be a fun little thing. If you want to, you know. Take Italian and eat pasta. I'll buy you an espresso in St. Mark's Square, okay? And then we'll go look at the Blessed Virgin Mother. One of my favorite icons in all the world, just to the left of the high altar where St. Mark is buried. You know, it's this beautiful little little thing. The only thing that got me, I stayed one day so late that they were locking the place up, and I was, uh, my buzz was completely killed. When you know, So you have this gorgeous icon, and Venice is where East and West sort of come together. So when you look, you see very much what, what looks like... Uh, um, you know, Istanbulish, Constantinople, uh, some architecture, the arches and some of the stuff. It, it's where everything sort of came together. And even in this icon, she's got a little bit of eyes. You'd think that maybe she's from Egypt or something. Well, anyway, so I was there for a very long time. And then um, it was time to, like, get everybody out. And the guy, the, the, the sextant, just comes out and he stands on a chair and he stands on the altar and he puts her up and puts her in a thing. I'm like, you know, you can't just walk up there and stand on the altar, but I suppose he does it twice a day. Uh, so I guess he thinks he can. So there you go. Um, one of the icons in my office I bought from a guy who uh, was working the stand at the, like, where they sell stuff. And, and um, he was clearly very knowledgeable. I'm like, man, what do you, what do, you do? I said, do you have any other icons? Because they have, you know, ones that are more inexpensive there. Usually cathedral gift shops, though, are very, very good. Um, in the in bigger cities and ancient places, and I said, you know, he I said, is this what you do? I said, you know, so much stuff. He says, oh, this is. He said, this is what I do to pay my rent. But he said, for ten years, St. Mark's is, is mosaic top to bottom, so it's huge, it's gi- giant, and it's all little mosaics. And I said, he said, for ten years after I'm done here, he said, I follow the guy um, who fixes all the mosaics, and I work for free. And he said, so ten years he's been working for free. And he said, I hope that when he retires, that becomes my job. you imagine that's your job, is to just repair the mosaics in St. Mark's? That's like dying and going to heaven. So um, it's just so interesting. People have a whole different idea of life and vocation and things that maybe than, maybe than we do. So 
Uh, I don't know. Very interesting. So anyway, there you go. Um, how's your fasting going? You all okay? Don't show your stuff before men. Although I will say, so I was in the store with my wife, who is greatly stressed, I suppose sorely tempted. And in this case, it manifested itself in buying really gorgeous, huge oatmeal cookies. Now, here's the thing. I have not... Is she here? So I have not... (laughs) Let me just say that I'm not fasting from oatmeal cookies, but these are... If you'd have taken these cookies and you'd have hung them on the tree of, of good and evil in the midst of the garden, you know... So then, I mean, she came home last night and said, like, where are the cookies? As if that's what I said I would fast about. Hey, I'm like, what did I say? The woman, she made me do it. So, you know, here's the thing. I mean, you can think about, hopefully your fasting is going okay, but, you know, you should think about something. It's not too late to join the team. You know, some people are always picked up at the trade deadline. So if you didn't think to fast, um, you know, you might just want to think about, pick something manageable, you know, and obviously... um, you know, long ago we lost the Lutheran notion you're earning your way to heaven. Jesus fasting in the wilderness 40 days. Lent is 40 days long. Ding, 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 ding. And he's fasting in the wilderness, right? So, I mean, your fast sort of sensitizes you to things. That's the easiest way to think about it. Um, I did sort of encourage you toward the end to maybe, um, you know, co-conspire with somebody else here. Uh, you know, a group fast, I just sort of brushed over this, but Obviously, the Day of Atonement, when all of Israel fasted, was a group fast. You know, it would be kind of interesting if we all fasted on Ash Wednesday sometime together, committed ourselves to prayer. It would take some doing because you'd, you'd want to do it in humility and not... Yeah. So you always want to have things that are done sort of happily. Collectively, you need to talk about things, but, um, you know, things can get prideful really easy. So, you know, I just... But I at least offer you that as a notion. If you need somebody else to... Um, you know, help you or, uh, you know, just sort of share, you know, how it's going, you might just sort of look around and see if you can find somebody who would sort of, you know, on the sly, you know, be your co-conspirator for a month. That would be good. In each kind of fasting, you know, all you're trying to do is you're responding to this sacred moment where Jesus is on his way now to the cross. So you have this period of time. There's a sacred moment in the church. The church marks it. Um, that Jesus is off to suffer for you and for me. And so it's, the, it's not that you suffer with Jesus, or I mean, instead of Jesus, you do, in some sense, suffer with him. But you suffer in his flesh, and his suffering is the thing that matters. But it's only to, this is just to sensitize you to, there's this interesting, I don't know if you saw it, one of the margin comments, I'm always behind or ahead because I'm proof in the text, but maybe it was last week where it said, humility comes by way of humiliations, one of the fathers. It's really interesting. It doesn't mean you have to like make a huge mistake and be humiliated in front of everybody. A humiliation is just where you realize you know you're not all that, um, you're not the end of the game. And so, anytime you sort of pinch yourself, um, you know, through giving something up, through giving alms to the poor, through disciplining yourself with prayers, anytime you pinch yourself with that, or when you um, miss it too, you see, missing it can be to your advantage as well if you handle it in the right way, which is to you know, repent of it and say, ah, you know, there's another sign of my weakness, and that's a counterpoint to Jesus who, when he was weak, was strong, and, you know, when he loved, went to the cross, and found his greatest joy in being lifted up before everybody. So there you go. Um, so anyway, uh, just any questions about your fasting? Keep it in the way of the gospel. Get some help if you need it. Um, you know, just, just do your best, and Easter will be here before you know it. You all right with that?
right, I don't know exactly how this is going to go. I don't know how long it's going to go. Um, I just want to talk to you each time about, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, one of the disciplines and do the other lesson too, maybe in this time of Lent. So I talked about fasting last week. I want to talk to you about prayer. My apologies to those who were at the new members class yesterday at the catechumenate because you're going to hear some of this for a second time. But it's not a lot of you, and it just happened that things overlapped. But I really just want to talk to you about your prayers because Lent is a time when um, we're given to praying. I mean, what's Jesus doing in the wilderness? Jesus is praying and he's fasting. And those two things have been traditionally, they've been traditionally something that have gone together. Why is that? Because prayer takes a lot of work. And fasting takes a lot of work. And anything you're going to do well, you have to be conscious about it. Like, this is what I'm doing for these 40 days. This is what I'm doing. Okay? Um, I think for many of you, uh, I had a friend once when I was at Princeton. He was a big guy. I mean, he probably, I mean, a big guy, probably 300 pounds. And when we'd have him for dinner, he, I mean, he loved to eat. Um, and he, he, was, he was just a big, jolly guy. But he said once during Lent, and we were just talking a little bit about fasting, he said, you know, and you would think he's the guy who kind of ate everything in sight. I mean, he was just like, just loved life. And, uh, but he said, you know, you'd think by looking at me, you know, he's a big guy. He said, you'd think by looking at me, um, you know, it would be difficult for me to fast. He said, I can fast all day long. It doesn't, make, it, doesn't bother, it doesn't bother me a bit to fast. He said, but pray? He said, man, that's where, that's where the difficulty is. And I think so many Christians find that as the difficulty. I think, you know, in our own prayer lives, we're just, you know, we're so busy. We have so many responsibilities. Life moves so fast. And um, especially if you come unstuck from church on Sunday, it's very easy to sort of miss your prayers and forget about them. Um, so, like so many things in the church, you know, prayer is often run by guilt. And when it's run by guilt, then um, we tend to avoid it because nobody wants to go through life feeling guilty all the time. But I would at least like you to think about your prayers, just kind of in this pause for Lent. I'd at least like you to think about your prayers a little bit, and I'd like to think about them in sort of, in terms of a happy failure. You know, we got a, we got a notion of this from Kleinig when he was f- here a few years ago and he talked about this, where he said, you know, Jesus tried to figure out a way that he could empower his disciples so that they could do good and yet not become proud. And he says, you know, if you think about all the things he could have given them, one of the things that he gives them is prayer because it can't possibly go wrong. In fact, he was bold enough to make the statement that if, if people pray and try to do evil, it not only doesn't do evil, it turns them into Christians. Uh, so that's a very interesting to think about. And, you know, what's on the heart and what's on the lips, there it is, the confession of Christ. And so all you want to hear from people, it's very little that makes a Christian. The Christian life is very big, but it's very little that makes a Christian. Right? Just that Jesus is Lord, the earliest confession in the church. So in your own prayers, I wonder, I just gave you a sheet, and if you just pick that up, I just want to have a look at that. And the reason I want you to look at it, these are just kind of some components that I want you to try to remember in your own prayers. And I give these to you to encourage you in your prayers. I'm very, I have zero interest in the Christian life as being guilty. It comes in all sorts of ways. You know, if you fast and you mess up, you know, you can feel guilty. That's not the point. The point is for you to understand how difficult life is and how good Jesus is. Right? The same way in your prayers. If you don't say your prayers, the only person you're cheating is you, right? I mean, the world's going to spin around just the way it spins, and at some point it's going to go to an end and completely blow up. And, you know, the counterpart to that is the rabbis who said, 
Um, you know, two, two really fun stories for me. One is when the rabbis say, if everybody in the whole world prayed at one time, the Messiah would come again and the world would end. The other one is, is um, that I'm always consoled by, uh, is, is um, you know, the guy who goes to a monk and says, you know, you pray all the time and, and it, you know, what proof? He, he, he says, you pray, you spend all your time praying. And, and what good does it do? And the monk replies, do you know what the world would look like if I didn't pray? Right? So in some sense, your prayers push back the darkness. And Lent is the consummate time of darkness. Go to dark Gethsemane, chief of sinners though I be. By the way, just as a sidebar, I really try to sit down. I've, I've read through the hymnal a couple of times in preparation, trying to get every last hymn that you want to sing in. Um, we're pretty, we got a pretty good flow going now. But if there's something you miss, and I'm trying to vary things so that things don't get sung one year, say it's the fifth hymn of the distribution. I try to bring it back up higher the next, the next year so that you get to hear. But if you have something you're just longing for, so I had three or four people stop me on the way out and say the last hymn today was, you know, one person said, that's the only hymn we ever sung in third grade because it's the only hymn my teacher could play. So we, we, sung it, we sung it every day. I'm like, really? I mean, because that's like, uh, you know, I mean, okay. And, you know, it's just, so, I mean, you have that stuff in you. But if there are hymns that you really think, you're really just dying to sing, don't send me 50. Like, I don't need 50 because I got 50. But what I need is, you know, if there's one or two that you think we're just missing that would make you happy, you know, I'm interested in making you happy during Lent, okay? So there's no reason we can't sing that stuff. So figure it out, out of the hymnal type stuff. Um, shine, Jesus, shine, hold your breath, okay? Because we're not going to sing it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do, okay? There was a hymn we sang a few weeks ago inadvertently, and nobody would claim it. I blamed it on the music department. They blamed it back on me. I'm like, take the music outside and burn it. They take it out of the computer. I'm not taking any responsibility for that. What's that? Yeah. <clears throat> Listen, I got pictures of you too, okay? So <laughs> just be careful. All right, so I'm going to just spin you through your prayers. Now, here's the thing. My goal is, and I said to you, by the way, I think we said to you, um, you know, we had a few more people ask for private confession, but often people said, and this happened especially with the men's retreat because we had some very good discussions about that and, you know, how it works. And, you know, all I, all I want to say to you is we want to make it easy on you. And my goal when you come to private absolution is to leave you smiling. I mean, that's the goal. The goal is to, with, you know, just to suck all the sins out of you. You know, to just to pull them out of you. That's the goal. So, um, and a few people said, well, if there were regular hours, I could count on. So anyway, we're going to have regular hours, which is on Wednesdays, 5.30 to 6.30, there'll be a pastor in the back. Here's the rubric, just so we don't have to watch. I mean, it'll take a little while. If you see somebody, like, um, back making confession, don't come and sit next to him just to let us know you're there, okay? <laughs> it is, I think, a mortal sin to hear another man's confession. I think that's true. I'm not sure I'd have to check on that, but you're like, if you're over here, you know, I think I told you I was at a monastery in Chicago on a retreat that wasn't quite finished, and everybody was sitting before the service, and they had private confession against the wall and confessionals. The problem is they hadn't put the tops on the confessionals yet. It was extraordinarily uncomfortable, because you're like, you know, you'd be in there, and then everybody's sitting there trying to stay there, but you're like, really? <laughs> so, um, you know... I mean, that's like soundproof. That would be my goal. So uh, anyway, we're in back from 5.36. Come for dinner, by the way, at 6, uh, six o'clock. 5.30 we'll be there. 6 o'clock there's dinner. 
um, come for prayers at 7. It's just, it's just good for you to come. It's good for everybody. And Hebrews, remember, don't forsake the assembly. You go to church not for you. You go to church for me. You do go to church for you, of course, but you also go to church for me. Don't forsake the assembly. Some of us have given up meeting with each other. Bad thing. Hebrews 11-ish, 3-ish around there, okay? Yes? Right. I'm a little unfamiliar. I was going to say, I know it went way back when someone had come up and be the pastor on a Saturday and said, no, send your brother next week or he's Oops, not going to be in You know, and that might have been 1930s or 40s, but um, why and when would that text confession? Believe it or not. So the reason you go to private confession is the same reason you have a private trainer. Otherwise, you wouldn't look so good. You know, you don't, go to, you don't go to the big class over at the sports center. You have a private trainer, I know, because of the way you're kind of bulking up, okay? So, uh, so the thing is, is um, just so you know, the Lutheran confessions actually are talking about, they say private and individual. If you read the Lutheran confessions, we actually did this at the men's retreat. That's actually what they're talking about. This whole corporate confession thing didn't exist there. So isn't this interesting how we switched? Like the confessions are written about private absolution. That doesn't exclude the other thing. It just means that, and it'll take generations for it to come back if it ever comes back to us. So it's only there as an option. So it's not that the general absolution doesn't work. It's not that you have to do it or you can't go to the Eucharist. There's a ton of reasons you can't go to the Eucharist, but um, seeing me isn't one of them, okay? Uh, But so it's just, think about it as electric windows on your car for right now, okay? Yeah, because you don't actually like to do this. Or maybe you do, I don't know. Um... Think of it as a positive and not a negative. Think of it as a get-to and not a got-to, okay? No, I, I think of it as a positive. Yeah. But so it's just the thing that, it's the way things always, the new thing that we have, what we do on Sunday is the innovation. That's the innovation. But, but the corporate confession was known earlier too, and there's a big discussion about it. So I don't even, so here's the thing. As I get to be older as a pastor, there's conversations, hear this in the right way, I'm not being critical of your question. There are conversations that just don't interest me anymore. Like, you know, why we should hate Catholics or contemporary worship versus regular worship. Here's the thing. Nobody is reasonable, so there's no point in talking about it anymore. Same thing with private absolution and corporate absolution. They do the same thing. The Eucharist, baptism, corporate absolution, the Our Father, the private, private absolution all do the same thing with different nuances. There's different things that happen in each one, right? In different ways and different kinds for different people, for different psyches and different sins. Right? And everything grabs different people in different ways. So all I want to say, rather than argue, I, I don't want to argue for any sort of exclusivity. What I want to argue for is, um, you know, it's like when you order chocolate souffle with your appetizer at dinner. It takes some time for it to cook up, and if you want it, you should do that early, because otherwise the chef will be cranky when it's closing time. Right? Think about it as a positive. But just know that it's not, the thing to kind of resist is this notion. It's like communing kids. It's like we still have, our kids go to other Lutheran churches and people won't commune them, even though we've, you know, run them hither and yon learning their stuff. That's what Luther did and that's what Lutherans did. And the notion that you wait till you're 14 or 15 is an aberration. It's not us, right? That's just not us. I mean, you, you can argue all sorts of things about it, but you can't Arthur, that's, argue that's what Lutherans do. The books are there for 100 years that specify you do it ages 6 through 9. You can just go read the books, instruction books for pastors, because pastors were so ill-informed. So... You know, I'm thinking about asking Pete to come back and do exactly the same thing for the women next year. So.
So I'm just kind of thinking about it. Because it played so well with the guys, and he was uh, quite engaging, it seemed. I mean, it was quite well received. So we'll see. I got to talk to... Um, I had to talk to the women who kind of kind of push that back and forth. Okay, yeah, good. So here's the thing. Nothing works by force in the church. Nothing good happens by force. And the church does not operate by guilt, although guilt is a very useful tool. Right? <laughs> Anyone who's been a parent or a pastor knows how persuasive this can be. However, you know, no sin, no guilt, and you're forgiven. And, and so I wonder if you could just think, and you can spin in your Bible if you want, but I'm just going to give you the highlights. The first is this notion of John 15 where Jesus says, you're my friends. Monday, Thursday, Jesus gathers the disciples. In the course of, of, of giving the Holy Supper, Jesus turns to them and says, you're my friends. That's really a remarkable thing for Jesus to say because that's not the normal relationship you had with your rabbi. You were his student. To be his friend is to be a very, very different thing. Now behind that is the notion of the ancient world and what it was like to have masters and students or kings and subjects. In the ancient world, um, if you were a friend of the king, that was a special category. And in some sense, that's what Jesus is saying to these people. You are my friends. I love you. You're my friends. In any, in any sort of, in King David's palace or King Herod's palace, there would be all the people who were scurrying hither and yon who were just servants. And they needed to mind their P's and Q's. But closer still were family and um, people of the court. Those people were able to give the king advice. Those people were able to approach the king and tell them what was on his mind. Those people were considered friends of the king. You see this as early as Abraham, who is called in Scripture a friend of God. So when Jesus says, you're my friends, and then he teaches them to pray, it's this remarkable sense of intimacy where Jesus is actually saying to you, I really value you and I'm interested in what you have to say. In fact, I even care about how you evaluate the situation and I'm willing to take your advice about how I might solve it or console it or fix it or move it in the future. So I'm your friends and I'd very much like to hear from you. It's a remarkable, remarkable thing. It's this great gift that you've been given. It is not a burden for you. It is not a burden for you. Not any more than anybody says, you know, here are two tickets to the Hawks game, or let's go out to dinner, or, you know, mind flying to Hawaii on these tickets I can't use, first class. I mean, it's not a burden for you. It is this thing where Jesus says, I really care about you, I really love you, you're my friends, and I'd like to hear from you. Now, on the bonus side, one of the really interesting things that happens when you appealed your case to the king in the ancient world, after you made your case, it wasn't your case anymore. This is a little like when lawyers argue and it goes to a judge. You know, at some point they have to stop, and then the judge is going to take all the information and do what he does, right? And there's no appeal, so kind of think of it as Supreme Court then, okay? This is a great thing because you all have things you're worried about. You have kids, you have jobs, you have houses, you live in Wheaton. How are things going to work out? Where am I going to go? You have people who are dying, you have friends who are sick, you got family members who are all mixed up. You have all these things and you think about it all the time. They're on your consciousness and you actually think to yourself, and if they could be solved, here would be a way that they could be solved, right? Well, what Jesus says to you in a very consoling way is, 
Good for you. Thanks for paying attention. I really love you. Please let me know what's on your mind. Now try to think about today. Try to think about um, Jesus. Just try to think about Jesus for 40 days fasting and praying. What that must have been like back and forth. All the things that are on Jesus' mind. He just got baptized, which is where you know the Holy Spirit said, you know, this is my beloved son, and he anoints him as the, as, as, the, as the servant. It's this clear message that he's the Messiah, which means he's going to die. Right? The clock is ticking now. Imagine what that, and it, and it says, the, the verb says, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. It's like pushed him out there, like this is the next big thing, this is what we do next, here we go. Right? Imagine what that conversation was like for 40 days. That's the conversation that Jesus has with his Father is the conversation that you have with Jesus because you're his friends. It's very, very important for you to understand that. The most important thing may be that when you give it to the Father, it's not yours anymore. And this is the great solution for worry. Generally, worry means you're consumed by things that you can't control. It's different from, it's different from interest. It's different from planning. It's different from seeing how the dominoes will fall. It's different from being empathetic. Worry means you're consumed by things you can't control. Okay? And we all have that. They're all things we worry about that we can't control. This is the great gift of prayer when Jesus says, you're my friends. The simple sentence, you're my friends, what Jesus is saying to you is, I'm very willing to listen to you, what your concerns are, even how you think it might be solved. And you know what? Your problems are now my problems. These don't belong to you anymore. I mean, who doesn't want to pray when that's the setup, right? So I'm trying to remind you for Lent. We come to Lent so often and we say, Christ and Scripture and prayer and the Eucharist and tithing and alms, and that can feel like a heavier and heavier and heavier burden. This is why you can say to people, have a happy Lent. Because what's happening is your burdens are being shifted off of you onto Jesus. One by one, starting with your sins in baptism. That's why Jesus gets baptized in the polluted water, water that's been polluted by all those sinners, right? Jesus doesn't need to be baptized, but he starts with the really big stuff. He forgives your sins first, and then every other concern that you have, he's willing to take. Now, so when the church says to you, make some time to pray, or when the scriptures say to you, you know, pray morning and evening, all they're saying to you is, flourish, uh, be unburdened, be happy, lose the stuff that's killing you, the stuff that weighs you down and tangles you up. <sighs> know that Jesus will do a better job with that than you will. When people despair of their children, or especially when children are sick and even dying, it's the hardest thing. The simplest thing to say is that Jesus is better with children than we are. Your kids, wherever they are today, whatever they're doing, Jesus is better with your kids than you are. And so when you pray for your children, you basically say, hey, you baptize them, they belong to you. We said it at the font. There's that point where we say at the font, the prayer at the end after the baptism, and now that he or she has become your child, we pray that. That's a very important thing that we say, that your child belongs to God. So Lent is just this reminder of this wonderful relationship. And if you don't use it, I mean, it's on you. You're not going to be forced to pray, but your life would be so much better if you did. You see how you think about that? See how that's so different from the law-minded way that you were taught when you were a kid of if you don't say your prayers, you're really bad, and if you're really bad, you're going straight to hell, and besides that, nothing for you at Christmas? You remember, you know, I mean, see? That's how, that's how so many people were brought up. The heart of Jesus is the heart of mercy. 
Jesus loves you. He values you. He's interested in what you have to say. He wants to help you. And one of the ways he'll help you is through your prayers. <coughs> yes, please. The answer to your question is who doesn't want you to pray, who doesn't want to pray with that setup is unfortunately Satan. That's right. And as you go through your prayers, I'm sure Jesus probably the temptation that he was fighting. He was trying to talk to his father, and Satan is right in there, you know, not only in physically trying to destroy. Right. So the cure would be. How do you. Good. I mean, I can say, Satan, get behind me, go away, and it works for like about 10 seconds, and there he is right back again trying to interfere and break that communication between... You can go all the way 10 seconds? You're like a desert father. (laughs) Way to go, man. So I'll just give you a simple thing to do. Say your prayers out loud. So because here's the reason why. Your prayers are privileged communication. So when you say your prayer silently, the devil knows you're praying, but he can't hear them, right? It's privileged communication between you and the Lord. We talked about this once where I talked to you about not complaining, why you don't complain all day long. Because when you complain all day long, just complain and gossip and complain and gossip, you're actually telling Satan where you're weak and you're inviting him to attack. Attack me here because this is what really bothers me. Which is, of course, what the demons are doing all day long. They're looking for an entry point. They're looking for the weak spot, okay? So one of the things that you can do in general, your prayers are privileged communication because you pray in the name of Jesus, which is like encrypting your words. But Satan can look at you and tell you're praying, but he can't tell what you're praying about. When you pray out loud, it's like, you know, it's like when you have hostage crisis and they play ACDC really loud outside. <laughs> that's what it's like, okay? Um, so th- that's, say your prayers out loud. That's, that would be my advice to you. And then here's the thing. Then your focus is subtle shift. This happens to you, to me too. You're like, you no longer have to be concerned with, I have to chase Satan away. It's like putting on mosquito repellent. You don't say, i got to chase the mosquitoes away. You just say, the mosquitoes are being chased away. So my simple thing would be, say your prayers out loud. And occasionally make the sign of the cross just to stick it in his eye. Okay? <laughs> All right, I want to keep going here. So first understand that you're friends of Jesus. So I want to encourage you in your Lenten prayers. And if you just need practical things, ah, uh, if you need something in your hands, there's couple of dozen of these back there. This is just right out of the hymnal, if you have a hymnal. But these are not bad things. If you just need a form like, I don't know what to do when I sit down, then sit down and just pick this up. It even has things to add in for every day. Just say the Lord's Prayer. Just say Luther's Prayer morning and evening. Please. It's good for you. Not because it's completely good for you. Okay? So, next I give you this encouragement um, from Romans 8.28, which people normally concite very carefully all things work together for the good of those who love God. Which, of course, is one of the things that you're hoping is happening in your prayers. That God will take evil things and somehow twist, turn, bump, nudge and fix them for your good. For example, sometimes when you suffer a lot, a lot of pain, some good things come out of that. Like, you become patient. You become more empathetic to other people who are in pain when you recover. You commit yourself to the sick when you get better. Things like that. You, you learn what's important and what's not important. All kinds of things can happen, okay? But around that, I don't know if you've ever noticed that Jesus says right there, I'm praying for you. So Romans 8, it starts by saying, Jesus prays for you, and then it says, the Heavenly Father will work everything out for your good, and then it says, the Holy Spirit prays for you. Beyond that, when you're given the Lord's Prayer, Jesus prays with you. So the thing is, you don't pray alone when you pray. 
Jesus spends his days, all of Hebrews, I keep waiting. You know, whenever Kleinig's Hebrews commentary comes out, we're going to do that on Sunday. You know, it's, this is, but the thing is, you know, you just like hope. He writes me and he's like, I'm in chapter 11, verse 6. It's so much fun. I'm like, pick up the pace. <laughs> you know, we're not, we can't wait forever. But um, all of Hebrews is about how Jesus sits, again, this have, uh, next, to, next to the God the Father. So we say in the Creed today at the right hand of God. And what's he doing there? He's not just goofing around. He's always praying for you, talking for you, looking at you, praying for you. Letting, you, letting the Father know what you think might be best. Asking Him to take consideration. All the time, Jesus and the Holy Spirit pray for you. It's this great consolation. And when you don't know what to say, the, it says in the, the, the Heavenly Father, search, or, or, I mean the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit searches your heart and prays for you with sighs too deep for words. There are sometimes you know this. Your grief is so heavy. The pain is so difficult. You can't even speak about it you can't even understand it. You don't even know. I'm sure you've had this. You have to have had this experience where you're just completely tied up in knots and you know not why. Well, so at that very moment, the Holy Spirit prays for you because He searches your heart. He knows what's happening to you. He knows what you need and He prays for you. So, you know, this wonderful thing of you're praying, maybe not, but Jesus is praying for you, and the Holy Spirit is praying for you. And when you pray, the disciples came to Je- the disciples saw Jesus praying. When he was finished, the disciples said to Jesus, "Hey, teach us to pray." And Jesus gives them his own prayer. You know that because he says a thing that nobody else can say, which is "Father." That is not how people prayed. So Jesus comes out of the wilderness. He has a spectacular relationship with God the Father. He calls him Abba. Daddy. And, he, and the, the disciples notice this intimacy and how, how good it goes for Jesus when he prays and how regular Jesus is. Even when Jesus is very busy with the work of the church, he's healing, he's forgiving sins, he's, he's, he's bringing in people who are outcast. Jesus always takes time. You read the text. He goes evening and morning and he says his prayers, right? Because like you, he brings his concerns to the Father. So they say, we would like some of that, please. That's what we've been talking about all year, this year. The people see you and they say, we would like some of that, please. How do we get what you've got? So the disciples come to Jesus. Jesus is a great witness, right? He's patient. He's kind. He's present. He waits. He asks some questions. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? He occasionally makes a statement. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father. Our Father. He's not just my Father, not Jesus' Father. He's our Father. He's Jesus' Father and my Father. He's Jesus' Father and my Father and your Father. So when you pray that, your flesh is joined to the flesh of Jesus. Your words are joined to the flesh of Jesus, to the words of Jesus. When you pray that, that prayer cannot go wrong. That prayer is all subsuming. Everything is in the Lord's Prayer. If you could go through Lent and just pray in, in the morning and the evening, when you wake up, you pray the Lord's Prayer. When you go to sleep, you pray the Lord's Prayer. Your life and the life of the world would change dramatically. Right? Because all the things, all the things you care about are wrapped up in that prayer and they're wrapped up with Jesus, with the flesh of Jesus. 
Now you begin to think about what an advantage this is. Why, and why this has to be taught by the church as something grim or guilt-inducing is, is just beyond me. The heart of Jesus is mercy. His mercy expresses itself in his love for you. And with his love, he gives you all he's got, himself and everything else, including his spirit, who prays for you, his own words that tell you what to say, and his own presence at the right hand of God. So, I mean, you see, your, your Lenten prayers, the discipline, it's the possibility to diminish or eliminate worry in your own life. It's your chance to have discipline in your own life. It's a chance to have confidence in God who hears you. And then the next bit, it's a chance to help everybody around you. This is so, so, so important. So, you remember these stories from Luke um, 11. Talks about Jesus talks, tells a story about um, a man comes in the middle of the night and says, hey, I just had guests arrive, can you give me something? And he says, you know, he doesn't give it to you because he likes you. But everybody's in bed and the door's locked. He gives it to you so you'll go away and leave him alone. But the point is, there's a two points in that. One point is, if you're reluctant, your Heavenly Father is not reluctant. In fact, your Heavenly Father waits around all day. to All he's doing is waiting to answer your prayers. He loves you so much, he wants to give you every good thing, right? And he's a person, you're a person, and when you talk back and forth, you work it out. He's very interested in you and yours, in you, in your spouse, in your kids, in your life, in your church, in your world. He's very, very interested in this. He's just, he's so interested in giving you gifts. He loves you so much. But beyond that is the benefit of you praying for other people. So you have a friend who comes, and you don't have anything. This happens all the time to pastors. People come to pastors, and they want pastors to solve problems which we cannot solve. This happens to you as a parent or as a friend. People come to you, and they want you to give them things that you can't give, right, that you don't have. What do you do? What's the story about? If you don't have something, you go and borrow it from somebody else. I usually go to the shites because there's a lot of them. You need darts, you need softballs, baseball gloves, a place to stay in, in, in Cancun. These are the people to talk to, the shites. Puerto Vallarta. Puerto Vallarta, sorry. <laughs> you go get things from somebody else and you give them to the people. This is what we've been talking about all year. What, what have we said? We haven't said a bit about witness being self-sufficient. You should be clever. You should be positive. We haven't said any of that. We've said that you are present in divine love and you give what Jesus has given you. Mercy, care. Okay? So you don't, you're not sufficient. You're not sufficient in your own life. But Jesus has all sorts of things. When you don't know what to do with your kids, you don't know what to do with your spouse, you don't know what to do with your job, your friends, your enemies, especially, just a little sidebar, if there's anybody you're hating this Lent, as soon as they come to mind, as soon as they come to mind, well, the two th- one of two things will happen. It will either spiral down into all the ills and all the horrors and all the troubles you've had, or as soon as they come to mind, if you begin to pray for them, and I'm talking about a serious prayer where you say, Christ have mercy, Christ bless them, Christ let them flourish, Christ do your best with them, Christ you'll do better with them than I ever will. You'll learn not to hate those people. So I'll just give you that as, as, as a discipline this Lent. If you have people that, and they come to mind, 
You watch. You're going to have somebody today that will come to mind that you just do not like. Family, friends, guy next door, somebody at work. As soon as they come to mind, the way you can, you can stop that hatred is to pray for them. Because if you don't, you know, it poisons you, not them. So, I mean, so just think about this. So here's Jesus. He calls you family. He prays for you. The Holy Spirit prays for you. It's not just for you. It's for everybody you know. It's for your family. It's for your friends. It's for your enemies. If you don't have enough of that, you can borrow whatever is given out in the church. Mercy, love, care, money, food, all those things. You can borrow that, right? Jesus is more willing to give than we are to ask. And he's really, really good at it. That's his character. Divine love is a giving love. You know, the, the divine love is this agape. It's selfless. So it's all about the object, right? I care about you. I'll give you everything I've got. <clears throat> I give you, we got to go, but I'll just give you the rest of this. Stay awake. Don't give ground, right? Don't give ground. Because Satan is everywhere. Don't give ground. You protect, you protect what you've got. You protect your family. You protect your church. You protect your marriage. You protect your life by saying your prayers. When you pray, you don't give ground. Okay? It protects the ground you've got. The other side of that is Psalm 103, and you count your blessings. The Lord who is faithful here gave me this, gave me that, will continue to give me good things in the future. And then two last things. The guy on the mat that they dropped through. This is just so, this kind of blows out the whole Wheaton notion that if you're a good boy or if you have a lot of faith, then Jesus will bless you. It's completely upside down. Read the story when you go home, Mark 2, the guy that they dropped through the roof. You remember this? Everybody's around, they all want to get healed. These guys have a friend, they believe in Jesus, they, they tear a hole in the roof, they drop the dude down right in front. You read the text, this is what it says. It says that Jesus looked up and saw their faith. And then bless the guy. That's not how people normally talk. We usually talk about, hey, you, so you say to somebody, you argue to Zeller, if you just had a little more faith, then God would bless you. Or your pagan brother, if you just had a little more faith, God would bless you. That's not what the story says. The story says, Jesus looked at them who are believers. So Jesus looks at all of you. And then he blesses somebody else who apparently doesn't even believe. Forgives his sins, makes him walk. It's remarkable stuff. Again, pure gift, pure gift, pure gift. And the last thing I can say to you, which is what I always say to you, which is the only thing you need to know about prayer, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, when you pray, God will give you what you ask or something better. When you pray, God will give you what you ask or something better. So, I mean, now this is how Luther thought. Whatever I get from God's hands is a good for me. Whatever comes to me is a good for me. Even 40 days in the wilderness, even Lent, it looks like it's a bad for me, because I'm deprived, I fast, I discipline, I pray, I love, I care about my enemies. Hold on, are those really bad things? Are those the things that we're meant for? And if we're meant for those and they're out of mercy, aren't those best for us? And isn't what best what Jesus wants for us in our own life? Do you see this? So when I say to you, you know, pray for Lent, I'm not saying pray for Lent. I'm saying, whoa, you won the lottery. Pray for Lent. So, I mean, just think about it in that way, okay? And I, here's the thing. You can think about everything this way. You can think about tithing this way. You can think about alms this way. 
You can think about coming to church this way. You can think about being merciful this way. The answer is the same for all these things. You just fill the blank in. This is what Jesus does. Because Jesus does it, it's good. Good for us means we share in it. Our faith is joined to the, our flesh is joined to the flesh of Jesus. Our way is joined to the way of Jesus. Our life is joined to the life of Jesus. That's the Eucharist. And so our prayers are joined to the prayers of Jesus, right? And off we go. And, you know, that's why Lent is this wonderful time of happiness, not this horrible time of discipline. So, I mean, I just give you this fasting, prayers, all of this stuff. It's very good, okay? We got to go. Love you. Um, Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, see ya.